From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Jamie Krolovec's work is deeply rooted in his faith and Ignatian spirituality, but he's not a theologian or a youth minister. Jamie is an urban planner by trade, and he's on the show today to convince you that caring about cities and urban parks and transit and zoning is a deeply Catholic endeavor. Jamie first saw the connections between urbanism and Catholicism while a high school student at St. Ignatius College Prep in Chicago, and he has turned his passion in that convergence into a career. In addition to teaching urban planning at Georgetown, he's the Associate Director for Mission Integration at the university's School for Continuing Studies. That word in his job title, integration, is such a perfect word to describe Jamie, who's become a friend of mine since I moved to the Washington, D.C. area a couple of years ago. In his career and in his life as a husband and father, Jamie models how faith and justice go hand in hand. He's one of the most Ignatian people you'll ever meet, and I'm so glad to welcome him on the podcast today. Don't forget to subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Jamie Krolovec, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. How are you? Good, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. We are friends, but I uh, not having you on because you are my friend, though it doesn't hurt. But uh, you recently were um, in, had a great piece in U.S. Catholic, uh, an interview about some of the work you do connecting urban planning and some faith questions. Uh, so that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Today, so excited to do that. But maybe first, uh, as we get started, you can just tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and your background. Sure. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I see myself as having uh, kind of an integrated vocation, uh, a vocation that blends a few different things. So currently, I work at Georgetown University, um, and I serve full time as the associate director for mission integration at our School of Continuing Studies. And so in that capacity, I'm responsible for bringing to life our Jesuit traditions in the way that we form faculty, staff, and students. Um, in addition to that kind of full-time staff responsibility, I, I teach at the School of Continuing Studies. And what brought me to Georgetown about seven years ago uh, was the opportunity to support the new uh, and now growing master's program in urban and regional planning, which I consider to be my primary vocation, my primary discipline, uh, trained as an urban planner. So in addition to the work of animating our Jesuit values, I also teach courses at the School of Continuing Studies, principally in the urban and regional planning program. Um, so that's what brought me, uh, I think, here today and what led to the U.S. Catholic interview is thinking about our kind of Catholic social tradition and thinking in particular about Ignatian spirituality, which I'm deeply immersed in um, as an Ignatian trained spiritual director and as somebody who thinks about how to offer to others the kind of gift of Ignatian spirituality. Um, what is the relationship uh, between kind of urban planning as a professional discipline, cities, Catholic social teaching, Ignatian spirituality? So all of those core questions are what animate the work that I do uh, at Georgetown and the work that I've done in, in my career to this point. So how did you get 
how did you find those connections? Like what, what came first for you? And then like, what was your like kind of process of discovery to see like, oh, I can do all of these things together. It's pretty amazing that you found a job in which you can kind of do all of them together. But like, what, yeah, what was your, that journey like for you? Um, yeah, no, it's a good question. Honestly, my journey about uh, these questions and the integration of them started young. Um, I had the great fortune to go to a Jesuit high school in Chicago. Shout out to St. Ignatius College Prep. Um, what stood out for me in my Ignatian education at, at the high school level was just how deeply ingrained kind of Ignatian education, Jesuit teaching, Jesuit social engagement is urban, right? So St. Ignatius College Prep on the west side of the city uh, with the downtown, the loop uh, kind of always in view, um, struggled, journeyed with, was challenged by these questions of what the kind of obligation and responsibility was in terms of Catholic social teaching. Um, and to me, the obligation was right outside the door of the school. This just beautiful gilded building um, that in its neighborhood context was at the time that I was in high school across the street from uh, high rise uh, public housing projects that were dilapidated and in the process of being torn down. So the kind of promise of the city on the one hand this incredible education, exposure to the diversity of Chicago, colleagues, students, faculty from all over the city. And on the other hand, the kind of the tension or the paradox of the city, the city is a place uh, in need of repair, healing, uh, justice. And so that tension of the city seemed to track well with the spirituality of Ignatius and, and the Jesuits. And so I, I drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak, and saw the connections at that age. I went on to college and went to Notre Dame and had an incredible education, but found myself there longing for a more kind of urban facing, urban engaged kind of curriculum. And I found ways to satisfy that, that longing at Notre Dame uh, through the Center for Social Concerns and other places. Uh, but I still had the urge um, to make a connection between kind of Catholic tradition, so Catholic social thought, and the practice of not just the kind of analysis of, but the practice of cities. And so I, it led me to eventually um, supported the Obama administration's efforts around urban policy. And I worked on an interagency White House initiative before jumping to Georgetown, where now I feel very blessed to do this integration as a job, which uh, is, is just pretty great. I don't know if you've heard that old, I think it was like a Latin saying, uh, about Ignatius is like Bernard, like St. Bernard, like loved the valleys, Benedict loved the mountains, Francis, the towns, Ignatius loved great cities, which in my little time with the Jesuits, kind of hearing the idea that the world is the house, your house. And even if you look at the US where a lot of Jesuit high schools and, and colleges are generally find themselves uh, in cities. What did you like learn about some of that tradition or history of like being drawn to those places that um, informs you? Yeah, no. So I think I started to realize just how inherently urban the kind of the society of Jesus is. It's urbanness. It's uh, is is uh, baked into the DNA of the order, right? Ignatius purposely went to Rome, set up the first apostolic ministries in the city, um, ministries that cared for the poor. Um, and the kind of location of schools intentionally in urban places, our global network of Jesuit schools are by and large in urban communities. 
And part of that relates to the mission purpose of the Society of Jesus, the care of souls, uh, seeking the more universal good in, in, in magnifying and glorifying God. And where is this more universal good to be realized? Ignatius talks about it in his letters and the early history of the Jesuits speaks to this is that the cities are places where um, we can, and in the way that we are kind of educated in this tradition can care for souls. So to me, the connection is obvious, um, but I will just confess that I, as much as there is a, an explicit connection here, and as, as much as others have written and talked about this connection, it is my own position, my own feeling that there is more attention, more awareness here in this conversation about what is precisely urban about kind of Jesuit education, um, Jesuit social tradition, the ways in which Jesuit works engage with the world around them. And so that's partly what uh, I've been trying to do in my writing and just my work as an educator and somebody steeped in the Ignatian spiritual tradition is how do we understand the kind of urban dimension of all of this work and all of this spirituality? So when you are getting ready to teach a class or preparing a curriculum or thinking of the different elements that go into that to kind of take it deeper, as you're saying, like what, what are some of those things that you focus on? What are some of the, the things you want your students to encounter? Yeah. And this is where I am just really grateful that I can bring in kind of spiritual uh, a spiritual framework into my teaching. And I do that in a very inclusive way that honors the kind of multiplicity and diversity of our students and diversity along any number of kind of indicators, including age, um, uh, professional experience, familiarity with kind of the Catholic social tradition. Uh, so what I bring into a class is really, I think the fundamentals of an Ignatian spiritual worldview or to use the Jesuit language, a way of proceeding. I think in any course, but especially in an urban planning course, kind of beginning with context or to use the language of the spiritual exercises, a composition of place. And this is part of kind of Jesuit pedagogy or the style of teaching, really understanding the context of your students, really understanding the context of the material being studied. And then to make the connection explicit with urban planning, really understanding the context of your place. Um, that kind of sensitivity to context is the, is the foundational starting point for any learning experience. And if you're not honoring that as an educator, you're probably missing something. And so I see that as an inherent lesson of Ignatian spirituality in the same way that the spiritual exercises invite us to ask God for what we want, right? To name our desires to God we do that in the context of our lives. We don't do that as an abstraction. It's about the context of who we are, where we live, our obligations, our challenges. And so I just think that's a really helpful starting point that I am inspired by from Ignatian spirituality and claim it as Ignatian, but I think it's also just good teaching and learning strategy. So maybe we should back up a little bit. And like when we, when you talk about urban planning, when I think about sometimes like, you know, I can think about us uh, sitting in a, going to like a zoning board meeting or something like what, when you're thinking about it, talking about it, introducing it maybe to people who don't have too much experience. It's like, how do you describe that practice? Like, what is it in like yeah. your elevator pitch? <laughs> My elevator pitch is for those of you who know the show parks, parks and recreation, I feel like the image of a small town kind of government office with a single urban planner or two stamping documents or 
having fired up citizens coming through the door uh, with some kind of complaint or issue in their neighborhood. That's partly urban planning. I think the professional discipline um, of urban planning is precisely that. It's how do we, in an orderly and systematic way, through various tools, including laws and regulations, plan for the future of places at various scales, from the smallest kind of fictional Indiana town in parks and recreation to mega cities, um, uh, increasingly uh, mega cities and, and, and big urban context. So how do we envision a future by using some core tools of the urban planning discipline, like how do we uh, meaningfully and authentically engage citizens and get their input about plans? How do we use data uh, to analyze the conditions in a place and what a place needs to kind of be just, to be flourishing, to be productive, uh, to be community. Um, so, and then other kind of facets of urban planning that, you know, this is what's beautiful about this discipline. It's inherently interdisciplinary. So when you talk about urban planning, we're talking about housing and environment and transportation. Uh, we're talking about the ways in which we meet, again, going back to this paradox and tensions of the city, we meet some of those core urban challenges, the things that stress an urban community. Uh, I mean, and today those stresses are obvious, especially in the context of racial injustice. We talk about the threat to affordable housing, the threat to true inclusion. Uh, we talk about the integration of kind of immigrant communities in the city. These are ways in which the city is challenged, but the planner, in collaboration with others can help realize a more just kind of future of a place. And on the other hand, you have like the, the treasures of the city, the kind of the assets of a place that I think of Chicago, my hometown, you know, herbs in Horto, the city in a garden, these ways in which our cities in, can be designed to magnify the glory of God through well-intentioned planning strategies, the use of green space, civic kind of infrastructure, incorporated into kind of social and economic life. So it's a really big discipline. I want to stretch people's imagination about it. I think the traditional kind of image of the professional planner is accurate, but I think urban planning is about so much more. And that can be open to people who aren't professionals, right? I mean, like what are some of the ways that you see you encourage your students who maybe won't be doing this professionally or do other things? Like how can we in our cities and towns participate in shaping the future of our places? Um, what are some good examples of that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I talked about this in the interview. Um, honestly, I think one of the best ways for um, conscientious citizens, residents, uh, especially those who might be steeped in kind of Catholic social teaching or others who are just motivated uh, out of like a universal commitment uh, to justice and to kind of goodwill. Uh, the best way, in my opinion, to shape a place is to participate in it, right? Um, at every level, at the most local level, right? As a family, um, as, a, as a unit, um, uh, at, at the neighborhood level, um, or at the building level, frankly, to get even smaller if you're living in, in rental housing, multifamily housing. Um, and one of the obvious ways to shape a place is by participating in its formal processes of guiding growth and development. So meetings, um, uh, going to meetings, informing oneself about the issues that might be implicated by a proposed new development or a new infrastructure plan for roads or public transportation and really getting in the space 
And hopefully if it's a well-designed process, having the opportunity to kind of reflect out of one's values about what you think should happen in a place. Um, so I think that's a great way if you want to get more involved in urban planning is uh, uh, to participate in deliberative processes about you know, the future of your neighborhood, the future of your region, the future of your city. So there, that's an obvious way to do it. Are there examples from either where you live now in, in Washington or Chicago or other places, things that you lift up, you see like, oh, here are an example of like some engaged citizens working with professionals, working with governments and civic organizations and like making positive impact on their cities. It seems like in a lot of places you hear about like, oh, there are some good things happening in different places, like whether that's like better infrastructure for buses or for bicycles or for like smaller parks and more places. Um, they're just things that are happening. What are some of like the trends that encourage you? Yeah, no. So I think a good local example here in Washington, um, and this might be a new thing for listeners to, to learn about, the 11th Street Bridge Project um, is you know a, a project that will connect across the river here on the east side of the city. And that project um, has intentionally built into it an equitable development plan. So one of the lessons learned in the last century of urban planning is the way in which planning can intentionally lead to inequity and inequality, especially along lines of race. And so this 11th Street Bridge Project is intentionally bringing together different stakeholders, kind of private sector, public sector, nonprofit, and citizens uh, to engage collaboratively in realizing equity from an infrastructure improvement that will also involve other assets for the community, the kind of enjoyment of green space, the potential for kind of spurring job creation and employment. Um, so I think that's a great local example of what happens when in a spirit of collaboration, uh, a community can realize a more just future. Um, and I think every city, going back to this point of context, every city, every local community has different challenges. There's certainly common ones, but you have to really understand the context of a place in order to plan it well. And so I look at Washington and my family and I has been, have been here for a little over a decade. This is a increasingly desirable place to live. Um, it's just the law of economics that this demand for housing makes it increasingly unaffordable. So I think that is one way that this city is challenged. And just to share one other example of kind of where urban planning has a role to play in kind of addressing that challenge of affordable housing, increasingly a, a new idea in, in planning is changing the underlying kind of land use regulations or zoning. And we've seen examples of that across the United States. Minneapolis, for example, has moved to eradicating single family housing as a land use category out of a need to create more uh, dense housing to satisfy kind of the demand for housing and to relieve the pressures on affordable housing. So I think those are, there are some examples of that happening across the country. This, this way in which planning is reflectively acknowledging how history and decisions and policies of the past have created the conditions of inequity, but ways in which planners and others can contribute to realizing more equity in the future. Yeah, you see real challenge. I'm seeing this in our own like 
part of the world where we live. You're mentioning the you know unaffordability of this region. You have I, I live in you know in in Maryland and a county here. Uh, you have like a lot of yard signs that are about like including everyone and everyone is welcome. Uh, and then you also have some of those those folks who have those types of signs also like fighting. Um, the, the idea of building like a duplex or a triplex uh, on a, a lot somewhere or moving away from that single family zoning. So you have both people say, oh, everyone is welcome, but we're also going to fight very hard to keep our neighborhood just the way it is, which essentially means for wealthy people only, um, which I, again, you see some of the, those challenges that we all have to kind of reflect on in our, our own selves, uh, but to kind of put our values into action. Um, and you mentioned uh, the way that in some of these plans that we've seen or the ways that things are set up, whether it's zoning or highways that run through cities or, or else other ways like that, some of those decisions from decades ago have, you know, show kind of like an institutional embedded racism. Are there any other kind of examples of that you can share? Is that's become like, you know, when people are now talking about anti-racism efforts mm -hmm. or talking about how we can see evidence of institutional racism around us, like there are some of those things that are, again, baked into the ways that our cities and towns are, are set up. Yeah, no, I mean, there's lots of things that come to mind. Um, I think uh, one thing that uh, that just comes to the surface for me is this this struggle for fair housing, right? I think fair housing, uh, this idea that um, uh, recognizing that housing in the United States has structurally been, uh, has, has been uh, kind of influenced by racism. Um, and that legacy is enduring. Um, we talk about the kind of uh, the differential in, uh, in home ownership among racial groups and what that means today, the kind of enduring legacy of uh, redlining and other practices that intentionally excluded communities of color, persons of color from neighborhoods. We talk a lot in urban planning about creating neighborhoods of opportunity, right? Um, and so the question is in fair housing, how, like what are the tools that are necessary to ensure fairness in housing? And there, this is an example where um, uh, the Obama administration and I think the Biden administration has, has tried to renewed this effort at the level of planning, when we talk about the allocation of federal resources in the community, is there an intentional effort um, to think about how the use of these federal dollars and these other kind of resources are being used to realize fair housing in the development of plans around new construction or the rehabilitation of old buildings? Uh, and that obviously involves legal considerations, um, but Planning is one of these things, and I tell my students this all the time, where we live in a context, right? We have a, we have a system of democracy. We also have a private capital system. And so in some ways, those kind of twin towers of our form of government and our form of economy are limiting to realizing some of these objectives, right? And so we have to work with the tools that exist. And as planners, and frankly, as somebody inspired by Ignatian spirituality and Catholic social teaching, we have to help our systems reimagine kind of new ways of realizing equity and justice and not allowing um, some of the barriers to get in the way. And so part of this is an ongoing, a recognition of an ongoing challenge, but ongoing work to repair and to re and heal history of uh, discrimination. 
I want to ask you about a connected word that comes up a lot when you're discussing things like future of cities, uh, which is gentrification. I, I, I remember like, you know, in the before times, one of the like a favorite trip I took was to New York City. And I went to the for the first, first time to the High Line, right, which is this park that was built on an uh, out of use rail rail line uh, above the street, uh, this incredible view. And you get these amazing uh, you know, vistas, and it's just it's just like an awesome experience to be there, like crowded with like thousands and thousands of other tourists. And um, then you start reading about it and learning about it, and how you know this you know, next to the High Line that became very popular. You had all this luxury housing that was going up, and the neighborhood where it was was turning from one that had been more affordable in Manhattan to one that was no longer affordable. Maybe people were being displaced who had lived there a long time, especially people of color. Uh, but at the same time, this was like not. Like this was just a, a rail line sitting there, like unused. It was like not a great look and not a great like, uh, attribute for the area. And now it's this great park that people want to visit. Um, so, like, I, what am I supposed to think about a place like the High Line? How do I think about gentrification? Is that real? Then I've read articles that, like, actually, no, that's people aren't really being displaced yeah. at the same type of rate that some fear. So, what do you think about? Like, what have you learned about that when you when we think about gentrification? What should yeah. we be thinking about? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think about this a lot because most of my students and most of the students who enter our program at Georgetown and many urban planning students and planning professionals are deeply motivated by social justice. In fact, social justice is written into the ethical code of the American Institute of Certified Planners. So I think the concerns around gentrification are really concerns around displacement. Um, that is, uh, either directly or indirectly through kind of market pressure and other forces, longstanding residents of places, many times persons of color, um, uh, who can no longer afford to live in a place because of the rising tide of prices related to either new demand, increasing demand for housing, limited housing in a place, or new amenities that suddenly make a place more desirable to live. So again, I'm gonna go back to my point about context. I think the challenges for, or the threats of displacement, the threats from gentrification depend on the context of a place, right? Um, I think of weak market cities, cities that have been deindustrialized, uh, especially in many places in the Midwest, where those places are challenged to reimagine their economic reason for being. Like the, the factories are no longer there, um, and so what are the ingredients to make a place desirable again? And oftentimes it's things like, you know, public infrastructure, arts uh, uh, as a form of community development. And so in that place, the fear isn't necessarily, uh, in every case, gentrification or displacement. The, the challenge is um, growing uh, a sustainable community by incentivizing living in that place. So in other contexts though, um, it's a tough question around the direct relationship between something like a, a, a significant project like the High Line and the effect, the kind of, we use this language in the economics of planning, the radial effect of a new project. Like, is there a spillover uh, from a new home, a new kind of commercial project, a new infrastructure project? Is there come some spillover um, in terms of the affordability of the place. And so there are a limited number of tools that planners can use to kind of guard against the excesses of exorbitant price increases, building in things like a requirement around inclusionary zoning, um, 
kind of requiring that for every new market rate unit that's built, there needs to be a percentage of uh, units built for lower income residents uh, of the neighborhood. So th there are some tools, but this is a concern. And I think it always requires kind of a context sensitive appreciation for the needs of the place and the kind of the local situation. I want to talk a little bit more about some of these, um, the, the faith city connects in terms of, you mentioned like ways some individuals might be able to get involved, questions we can be asking when we're thinking about the future of our, our places. But I'm also curious about like the role of faith institutions in cities. And you mentioned maybe some of the work that high schools or universities do, you know, even parishes, uh, in, in towns. I, I remember even thinking, I used to go to a parish that was really in an old fashioned town. People walked by it all the time. And I thought like, oh, maybe we should throw up one of those like little free libraries that has like sp Catholic spirituality books in there. And like people could like grab it without coming in. Like we could be more outward facing to the neighborhood than we are, which is like kind of, we come to church, we're focused inward and, and then we go home. Um, it again, seems like the, at least the history of Catholics Catholicism in the U S which is very urban and has you know, obviously changed along with the rest of the country, but you still have some of those roots there. What are like some of the ways that faith communities uh, in particular have, and maybe can uh, engage in some of these processes to be a voice around the table um, as a, a community? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so there's a lot of ways that a faith institution, whether it be a college and university or a high school, a parish, um, uh, a nonprofit that works very locally or even regionally or nationally can advance kind of the goals of equitable urban planning, urban development. So one example is just hard real estate, right? The ways in which the church in particular uses its real estate um, to uh, advance kind of local goals around um, uh, housing, low-income housing, uses its real estate to advance environmental goals. Um, you know, the church, there was a great article recently in the New Yorker about a young activist who's been helping Pope Francis and the church think about Catholic landowning and the need for more strategic tools like geographic information systems, GIS, to better understand the universe of Catholic properties, a Catholic owned properties around the world. So on the question of like hard real estate, how do we use our kind of brick and mortar, uh, our, our parish buildings, our kind of church affiliated buildings, how do we use them to maybe support uh, local revitalization, local development? Um, the other thing is like, how do we use our church resources uh, to be places that are welcoming? Uh, places, uh, for example, where um, immigrants to a community can feel like they belong and can get the services they need in the community that they need. So it's the church as a place of encounter, a place of welcome. But then there's other ways, right? The, the human capital, the capacity of our religious and our faith-based institutions. I think at the university level, the way that universities, especially in our Jesuit network, use their intellectual resources, their faculty, to provide capacity in terms of research and analysis and even urban planning to support local community-based efforts uh, where local community-based organizations might not have the capacity, might not have uh, the resources. So how can we develop partnerships where there is a mutually reinforcing relationship between the university and the local place and to do that in a way that the local needs are being addressed and met but the university becomes this kind of support. And so I think in my own context about the opportunities for community engagement at our colleges and universities 
including, but not just kind of traditional ways of serving, right? These are like capacity building efforts that ultimately I think build equity in a place, uh, create the conditions for longer, more sustainable development. I love this idea that like these faith-based institutions, whatever they are from like a small parish to university, like by being themselves can, should be by nature being engaged in the community, but it should be welcoming, uh, should be offering spaces for, for prayer, for meals, for legal aid, like for whatever. I mean, so that for me, another example of how like these things come together, like in your, your own vocation is that if our parish is its best self, then it's going to be doing this. And like, maybe often they are doing it without even knowing that they're doing it because they're just being a parish, like a vibrant place that, that does that sort of, uh, outreach and, you know, community organizing. I also appreciate your um, mentioning Molly Burans uh, from the Good Lands Project, who's mapping uh, Catholic land holdings around the world. She's coming on as a guest soon. So we're going to have like a nice little uh, series of uh, urban planning, mapping, ur- urban nerd, nerding out, church nerding out series coming up. So that's great. We'll make a little series. Um, I do want to ask one final question about this kind of um, church city engagement, which is about this, this um, document we have from Pope Francis, um, Laudato Si, which when I think of Laudato Si on like kind of care of creation, I think of Francis of Assisi. Often I'll think about like beautiful mountain ranges and kind of the wilderness and the woods and the, those places we need to protect. And that's the, certainly part of it. But Pope Francis is an urban guy, uh, has that background. Uh, and a lot of it is kind of about cities and how we how we do these things that we've been talking about. And I'm just curious for you as someone, do you remember like reading that for the first time uh, and like being like, oh, this is great. Like this is going to be big for me. Um, do you use it with your students? Like what for you are like some of the big fruits of uh, Laudato Si that you continue to draw on these years after it came out? Wow. Yeah. No, I, I Laudato Si was just a watershed moment. I think in the potential integration, the greater integration between kind of faith, spirituality, the the social tradition of the Catholic church and urban planning. I just, a huge moment. Um, uh, A couple of things to say about that. So going back to this idea of context, um, you know, I often think and am asked like about Francis's context as a Pope, like how can we understand him? And often the question is, what about his being a Jesuit explains a lot of what he's done uh, as, as the Pope. But I also think the context of what he has done as somebody who lived in cities, this image of him riding the buses in uh, Buenos Aires, uh, there's a, a beautiful picture of that. I, I, I saw it once. Um, it just gives you an impression of where his kind of ground up, his kind of experience of the world has informed his own faith and the way that he's leading the church. And so Laudato Si reflects many things. It reflects a social scientific kind of uh, uh, appreciation. The, 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 the engagement with interdisciplinary experts who study the sustainability of our systems and the world and the environment. And so in some ways, Laudato Si is just a good kind of resource for anybody interested in sustainability um, because of its groundedness in analysis, social analysis, environmental analysis, economic analysis. But then what Francis does in the document of the many things he does is he actually calls out urban planning by name. And so I said this in the interview, I felt seen as a professional urban planner by this explicit reference. It's not a passing reference. He, he talks about integral ecology, this idea that 
And this is what we talk about in urban planning. Everything is related. An interrelated challenge in a city requires an interrelated response. And that is what urban planning is meant at its best to do and be. Um, and so he talks about transportation, for instance. And, you know, in developing a transportation system, it has to be high quality for, for there to be incentive for it to be used. He talks about housing and the challenges and the tensions there to this question of gentrification. Um, you know, honoring the local identity of a place, the kind of character, the culture of a place, and not forgetting that when we design or redevelop um, communities. How do we honor that local context um, and that local uh, kind of character? Uh, but he also talks about the ways in which it intentionally plans, projects exclude. You know, he asks these questions, is the green space in a city, is the place that people desire to go just in the affluent parts of the city? How do we create to his kind of language of encounter, how do we help the city become an authentic place of encounter where people of difference meet each other and learn from each other and grow in community. So I love the document on its merits. I think every urban planner should read it regardless of their faith or spiritual inclination. And for my students, I, I, I heavily encourage thinking of Pope Francis as an urbanist. And frankly, I think he is as insightful or more insightful than many kind of uh, contemporary urbanists who think about these questions. Uh, yeah, I, and I would love maybe to leave with, um, so we have, we're building a reading list, right? We're going to link to your great interview in U.S. Catholic, in which a lot of this is similar themes, but um, goes in a little bit more detail in some of them, which is great. We have Laudato Si, we can link to that. Um, what what are other places that people are really interested in these intersections now, where you might send them to to find a book or an article? What, what, what good stuff out there is, uh, is worth following up on? Yeah, so I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, somebody whose writings have deeply informed my own thinking on this. And um, this is a scholar, Philip Sheldrake. Um, he, again, I think lives this intersection of kind of urban, or both urban form and urban practice, as well as Christian spirituality. And so his book, The Spiritual City, Theology, Spirituality, and the Urban, is a readable, digestible, compact, but comprehensive basically survey of the way the Christian spiritual tradition has engaged with the city. And I love it as kind of a starter resource to going deeper on these questions of what exactly does it mean uh, to bring faith, to bring spirituality, to bring kind of uh, mission-driven social engagement into the life of the city. And some of it's kind of abstract and a bit theoretical. Um, we talk about this Christian tradition and the metaphorical city of God from Augustine up through the very practical urbanists, the Jesuits um, to today. And so uh, I love that book. I'd recommend it highly um, uh, to anybody who really wants to go a bit deeper in, in learning about these issues. Awesome. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for taking the time. I just really love your integrated vision and the way you talk about this stuff with uh, such passion and clarity. I, I'm going to go get that that book and again we're so excited to to have you on and be able to share some of your good work and um i want to come and audit a class i think all these professors i talked to i'm like i need to take a class but you're in the school of continuing studies right so like i could in theory actually take a class yeah no uh this is turning into a plug for the school of continuing studies which is great i love that part of my job 
please check us out, degrees, non-degree certificates, other kind of ongoing continuing education opportunities, um, uh, lots of modalities, traditional in-person, online. And so uh, I'm just really proud of the mission uh, of ours at, at Georgetown. Talk about updating a tradition that's very old. And today we're part of uh, kind of the work of providing access to professionally relevant, um, socially relevant education grounded in our kind of Catholic and Jesuit tradition. So check us out. Awesome. Yeah, we can link there as well. Well, Jamie, again, thanks so much for coming on and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Mike. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>